Hi, I'm Sohail Janasari, a migrant rights researcher and activist. At the Qualitative Applied Health Research Centre, mercifully shortened to Quark, we aim to inspire debates on qualitative methods and practice. In this podcast series, we talk to people in other fields, such as philosophy, film and journalism, about the parallels and contrasts between their work and qualitative research. In doing so, we hope to broaden and challenge understandings of what qualitative research is and can be. Today our guest is Ruth Sigmund, a philosophy academic and a co-founder of the Cotton Tree Trust, a charity that works with migrants and refugees. She's a current trustee there. Ruth, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, Sahel. Um, Well, for years and years, I worked as an academic philosopher in uh, various institutions. Um, I was what was known as an applied philosopher. I was always very interested in, I was, I got involved with medical ethics, special education, educate, other kinds of education, um, and ethics generally. And I was always interested in the relationship between, if you like, theory and practice, um, everyday life, and thinking about it, reflecting on it, and saying something of importance, hopefully trying to. Um, so that's my sort of my academic background. And I've written a lot of articles and stuff, book, you know, um, in those sort of areas, f- focusing quite a lot, as I say, on, on people, actually, people in different situations. I also started a charity with some other people in 2016, uh, Cotton Tree Trust, which is for refugees and asylum seekers. And since then, I've been very absorbed with that. It's been much more demanding than I ever imagined, um, even though we keep our numbers quite small. But we do engage with them very directly, our members very directly um, in terms of their everyday lives. And we, we, we try to do what we can for them in terms of the law, emotional support, social support, and these kinds of things. And because they're human beings, um, everything spills over into everything else. Um, so that's really where most of my energies are directed, but I'm still an honorary research fellow at UCL. So I still get asked to do some things. Um, I'm about to write an article on punishment in schools. Um, um, but basically most of my time I'm spending with the cotton tree. Great. Thanks. And how did your sort of academic work lead or link in to the work you're doing um, with the cotton tree trust? Well, as I said, I've always been interested in really the the interface between thinking and relating to people, <laughs> you know, how we think about people and how we think about everyday life and how we think about how we treat people well. That's really always been my basic concern, whatever the context. Um, I I think probably what kicked it all off really for me, um, the, 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 the direction I went into with the Cotton Tree Trust, um, I, it's, I started going in that direction, I think probably at a conference in Edinburgh in about 2014. Um, it was about wilderness education. And there were lots of teachers there who, being in Edinburgh, they took kids out to the highlands and they, you know, they, they were giving children experiences of nature and it was really good. Um, so I went to this conference about three days and the first couple of days or day and a half, um, it was quite interesting, but everybody was talking very theoretically, um, using theoretical concepts like uh, the learning continuum and the hierarchy of needs and whatever it was. And I was involved, you know, and I was trying to kind of you know deal with these. It wasn't particularly my area, but I was trying to grasp the concepts that they were using. 
And But I think it was on the second day, I suddenly thought, and I put up my hand actually, and I said, uh, this is all really interesting, but nobody's actually mentioned a child. Um, and you know, you've all been out on in the Highlands with children and I haven't heard any stories. I haven't heard about anything that's happened to any children or, you know, and, and I wonder if there's some kind of aversion, some kind of attachment to theory and an aversion to actually talking about children and people and teachers for that matter. Um, and it, it caused a little bit of a stir. Um, but that was really my realization that there's, there's a lot more to philosophy than theory and it needs to connect. Great. And so, you took that realisation and then this was before you started the charities? So yes, it was before. So walk me through the steps from the realisation to co-founding the Cotton Tree. I mean, I, I, then, I then wrote an article on cherishing, <laughs> which is a kind of un, an unusual concept. It's not one that's used by philosophers. And I use this really, I don't know if it was a mistake, because it's, for some people it has religious connotations, which it, for me it doesn't. But it, it was about really being intimate with people and really caring about people. And I use that word. Um, I wrote an article about that. It got us, it was actually, yeah, in the context of teachers and children. Um, and it got some interest. And I then got a book contract very shortly after that for a book on cherishing. Um, and so I spent three years really thinking about uh, theory and practice and how you can bring people into philosophy. And, you know, I've had, I've been in philosophy for a long time. I, I sometimes wonder why, because it can be a very dry subject. Um, and I never wanted it to be that way. It never has been really for me. Um, but I started exploring all this. Um, during the course of writing that book, um, I happened to meet an asylum seeker. I was actually asked with my husband to, to, um, host a refugee for Christmas. Um, and this man was quite an amazing person and had very extreme needs. And we spent quite a bit of time with him on Christmas day driving and, you know, spending whatever during the day. Um, and we listened to his story and we got, to cut a long story short, we started getting to know him very well. After that Christmas day, we started inviting him around for meals. He came with his friend. And I started really thinking about the, the overall question that drove me in philosophy about how you can really relate to people, engage with people in a way that is two-way. It's not just me helping you. It's it's me learning from you. It's you, you learn, you helping me. You know, it's, it's a human relationship. Um, and that kind of came out of, you know, it, it was very timely for me because I was thinking about cherishing. Um, so they, obviously they, they fitted together. And I, as a result of meeting that man, um, it just became very clear that I had an opportunity to get some money to start a charity. And we started the charity, the Cotton Tree Trust, very much based on the idea of giving asylum seekers, refugees, whatever they're called, migrants, the time they need to really be human so that we weren't just treating them as clients and filling in forms for them, really relating to them and, and talking about our strengths and weaknesses as well as their whatever they were going through. Um, so to me, it was a very natural evolution from, if you like, the wilderness conference to, you know, the stories that they were telling to really trying to listen to, to human beings and, and be listened to as well, because they've got to know us pretty well. And how do you continue to bring some of that philosophy knowledge into concentrate work? Um, I mean, I'm involved in a weekly workshop, which we call Heal and Grow. Um, and it involves being really attentive to the people in the group, the members in the group. We have some volunteers as well. We're all very much equals. 
you know um it's actually led now by the asylum seeker that we met in 2015 that he he now actually facilitates this group and i support him um you know we 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 think about concepts sometimes we think about what what is love what is trust what is friendship what is justice um but it's always very much in con- the context of their lives and what's happening to them could there be be their daily lives their what's happened this morning or what happened what's happening with the home office or what's the fact they've been waiting for 10 years or whatever it is um so we're always trying to interconnect you know thinking about <laughs> you know about the feeling of being um betrayed for example and how that relates to the, being distrustful um to their to, to to the concept and their lives we're always kind of connecting these things yeah, that's really interesting. And so how, so do you think that talking about these philosophical concepts helps people's mental health? Absolutely, yes. Um, I think, you know, if you take a concept like justice, I mean, and you know, asylum seekers, people who come here and, and seek asylum, they've been thinking about justice. They may not have been pinning it on that word, but they've been treated badly. They've been abused and they've been feeling this, if you like, the sting of injustice. What we do is we bring that out and it gives them a kind of platform, if you like. They, they listen to other people's stories. They tell their stories and they think about, it helps them to think about why justice matters. It helps them to think about why justice is something they're entitled to. You know, instead of just feeling abused, they feel there's something here that every human being is entitled to there everybody every human being is entitled to be treated decently and well and it it um i think it, it just gives them a, a a sense of solidarity with other people a sense of community and a sense of being able to really bring certain thoughts and feelings which have been probably quite buried because they've been so traumatized they come to the surface and they talk about them i suppose it's a little bit like if you it has some overlap with what was called the talking cure you know, by Freud, um, that if you talk about something and you're listened to and you, you, you listen to others, it, it brings about a kind of healing. And I've seen this uh, over the years that we've, we've been running the cotton tree. And people, they, they say to us, yes, I feel a lot better just for talking about that and being heard. Thank you. That's really interesting. So I just wanted to come back to something which we talked about before we started recording around this difference between applying your philosophical practice and locate, you know, trying to explain practice through philosophy. I think, um, I mean, you can tell me better and explain to me better, but can you just think, can you talk to that idea and place it in the context of the work with Cotton Tree? So how, sure. how, how so you're not applying your philosophy, but you are. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, really, it's, this is not my idea. I mean, it comes basically from Aristotle. So it's very, very ancient. Uh, Aristotle, I mean, he, he was, and he was quite radical in this way. He said, you start from where you are. You start from your life. And what you then do is you try to articulate and clarify and ask questions about what you know from your own life, what you experience in your own life. Now, one of the things we experience, and this is obviously, this obviously connects immediately with the cotton tree, is we know that some people are treated badly. Some people are abused. We know the difference between good and bad treatment. Sometimes there may be a gray area in between. But if we start from where we are, in Aristotle's sense, 
we know that, you know, we, we start off from decent treatment and not so decent treatment or, or abuse. And then in philosophy, what, what I've always wanted to do is articulate that and talk about, well, what, what is decent treatment? What is a decent society? What, what is this? We, we recognize it, and, but we want to make it more explicit. We want to articulate, we want to describe it, we want to, you know, more, more describing, actually. It's about describing rather than trying to theorize. So I, I've always considered myself a bit of an anti-theoretical philosopher. I think Aristotle was in a way as well. Uh, Wittgenstein in the, in the 20th century was very much anti-theory. Um, in a way, it brings philosophy home. To, and Wittgenstein often talked about bringing philosophy home, coming back to where you are, very much like Aristotle. Um, I think, you know, in the cotton tree, we, we recognize, we, we, we try to observe and listen and, and see what's happening and see when, you know, it happens in any community. Sometimes people are not treating each other well. Sometimes they're treating each other very well. They're being kind. They're being unkind. And we try to make this explicit. We try to make things explicit so that people can really get to grips with, you know, what's happening instead of it being rather subterranean. Um, I don't know if that if that makes sense. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, it would be good to unpack a bit. So, mm. what you are trying to do is describe what a decent society looks like using or, or building on actual experience. Um, so, is that that you try and focus on the positive yeah. sides of experience and then bring that out, or yeah, if you could, uh, yes. I guess, describe a method of how you get to this description. Okay, um, I think one way, that, one thing that might help to, to explain this. Um, there's a philosopher that I really like, an Israeli philosopher, um, who makes a distinction between what he calls IE philosophy and EG philosophy. Now, IE philosophy can be. It's basically. Um, it, it explicates, you know, when you say IE in a sentence, you're kind of explicating what you've just said. EG philosophy involves giving examples. And so it takes you straight into life. And he says there are two different kind of philosophical temperaments. There are philosophers who really want to go into everyday life. They're EG philosophers. And there are IE philosophers who want to expl explicate all the time and define and, and all that kind of thing. Um, I, I see this all the time with philosophers. You know, that there are these two different temperaments. I'm very much an EG philosopher. I always have wanted good examples, like in the case of the wilderness education. Um, I think you have to talk about people to support your argument, to support what you're saying. You, you, Of course, you define words and of course you explicate, but you can't just do that because then it just becomes like a closed circle. It becomes arid. If you've got the, 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 the real examples and you, you, you try to impress people with those examples, look at what's happened here. And it, we, we can talk about this in the cotton tree. Look at this example of somebody who, you know, um, an, an asylum seeker who's maybe abused our services or, or whatever it is. So you, you, you're constantly referring to people, bringing up examples. Um, I call this populated philosophy. You've got people right at the heart of it. So you're, you're trying to use language well. You're trying to explicate things. You're trying to use language words clearly, but you're always referring to, to the human situations. And so is it about being convincing and providing richness to your arguments or is there something more um, in EG philosophy? It is about those things. It's also about 
taking the time it takes, you know, um, I think it means that sometimes you're, you have to be much more at leisure. And I, this is something we have in the carpentry and also in philosophy. You know, sometimes it takes quite a while to kind of unpack an idea like we're trying to do right now. You know, you can't necessarily say, well, we've got a, a 20 minute slot and we need to just uh, uh, define a word. Um, I think, I think there's a lot of this, the assumption that you can define words really quite quickly. You can understand them quite quickly. Um, another philosopher that I like very much, and again, this might help to explain more of what I'm saying. Iris Murdoch was a very good philosopher. I don't think she was such a great novelist personally, but she was a very good philosopher. And one thing she said is that we always have to be trying to deepen our concepts. So we have an idea of love or happiness or, or whatever it is. We always have to be trying to go deeper with this. And we do it by reference to life. We do it in the EG style. You know, um, because we really want to come to what is love? You know, one could say, what is mental health? What 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 do these things really mean? Um, and we 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 do this by taking giving giving it the time that it takes, and having dialogues. Dialogue is very important in philosophy. Um, you know, you go back and forth, and you try to be clearer. You try to understand the other person's queries, like I'm trying to understand yours now. You know, um, and. It, it's it, in some ways it's not what people think of as theory, because theory involves coming to some quite clear conclusions. And how do you promote dialogue? How do you facilitate it? What's your style? How do you get people talking about quite you know initially abstract issues? I know that you provide examples, but how how do you encourage this conversation? Do you mean in in academic context or in the cotton tree? Uh, for instance, in the cotton tree, because yeah. it sounds like what you described yeah. is what you do in your yeah. well-being yeah. workshops. Yeah. Yes, yes, um, absolutely. So we've got various ways of trying to get the conversation going. Um, I mean, one thing that we've done quite successfully is get a piece of a long piece of lining paper. It's like what's used underneath wallpaper, and it goes along a, a table, a long table. You have the group around this. You have a bunch of felt pens different colors you have some maybe some clay and you start off the session just throwing out a question you know it could be anything some somebody yeah you know um it's quite an abstract question if you like um you know it, it could be about justice it could be about love or it could just be something that's happened to somebody it doesn't really matter actually um but you follow this question and you while you're following it you're drawing you're molding clay and you get deeper in the Iris Murdoch sense, you get deeper into the question and it becomes not abstract, um, although the abstraction is still there because you're still thinking about love or you're still thinking about justice, but you're giving examples all the time and people are thinking about their lives and they're feeling, you know, they're, they're feeling the sting of injustice. They're not just talking about an analysis of justice. And so we, we have really good conversations um, in, in the cotton tree. And I think it's the same actually in a philosophy seminar. You, you know, if you give people an opportunity to really sit down and, and, and follow the conversation, follow the path, um, you don't know quite where it's going to lead. And you, so this, this wallpaper lining, yeah. is it literal? Yeah. <laughs> How is that used? So do people write? Yeah. Or is it, okay. Yeah, yeah. We started this off with, um, with, a, with a quotation from Paul Clay, the, the, the artist, who said, drawing is taking a line for a walk. So we started this. We had so somebody would start a line with a with a felt pen, and then somebody else would take the felt pen and take the line a bit further. And this was kind of the model that we're kind of together. 
we're taking something for a walk, but we're doing it with we're doing it with line, and but we're also doing it with questions. You know, so I throw out a question, then you take up the question, and somebody else may take up the question in a different way, and we pass it around. Um, and this is this is the way we get deeper into um, our understanding, into you know these these kind of implicit aspects of our lives that I was talking about before. You know, somebody who's suffered from injustice, but not analyze the word justice. But you start thinking about this in a way that is can really be very calming. Great. Um, apologies if I'm fixated on this style pen activity. <laughs> yeah. So, but there's, I just want to get my head around it. Yeah. So does someone, do they, while they're talking, draw this line which connects to the previous person's line? And do they, is it just a line? Is there more to it? Is there, and, and why does that help people yeah. um, connect and talk? Okay, you start seeing things emerging. Um, for example, the line, somebody may take the pen and t- t- turn the line into a spiral, you know? And then you can think about, and then people start, they notice that. They might say, why did you do a spiral there? Um, and we might then pause and think about maybe, you know, because that person feels very stuck in, 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 in their lives are like a circle and then it's not going anywhere. They're, they're going more and more inside themselves and not out into the, into the life that they want to lead. And, um, you know, so what happens, shapes emerge, you talk about them, you comment on them, and you do that in, uh, you know, in a way that connects up. Um, oh, well, I, I, I did that because, yes, I was thinking about this, or I was thinking about that, or I was feeling really hurt by something that's happened, or whatever. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And so I know also that you do clay workshops. Mm. So does this draw on a similar idea of... Um, you know, facilitating these conversations using samples around deep philosophical issues. Yes, I mean clay is very interesting because, um, well, clay when it's when it's um, fired is really really fragile. You have to be careful not to drop it. But when it's not fired, it's really really sturdy. So we have all sorts of conversations about clay itself and how it relates to being fragile and being strong. You know, um, but then we we you know somebody might make a clay figure. A simple clay figure and they put it down and the head falls off and then you start talking about how fragile we are you know so again we're we're using these kind of you know we're using our hands we're looking at objects we're molding objects we're looking at the shapes that are emerging we're, we're doing all these things um it, it gives us something to look at it gives us something to focus on and actually i, I was doing this with an art psychotherapist who was who had more training than i do uh, obviously, because I'm not a therapist, in actually, you know, talking about the meaning of, of the marks that people make or the clay that people mould or whatever it is. Um, but I, so I was, I was more on the side of, you know, the, the, the meaning of words and how, and how it re- goes deep into their lives. And, um, but we were also looking at the, the feelings that were coming up and the, and the, you know, the way they were expressed through, through felt pens or whatever it is or clay. Fascinating. And do you take what people have said? Is that, does it just live in this session you create? Does it continue afterwards, these conversations? Is there anything that people bring back with them so that, you know, it records what happens? Mm. Right? Mm. Well, um, we have a WhatsApp group 
which is which is 24-7. Anybody can post anything on there as long as it's not something abusive. Um, so we post the photos. We, I mean, I, you know, we take photos of this, of whatever emerges. And yes, then there's a, the, the conversation can continue. It doesn't always. Sometimes it does. You know, somebody might say, yeah, I was... Um, I was a bit upset about this, or I was a bit puzzled about that, or, you know, or today I something reminded me, or whatever it is. Um, so yes, we keep in touch between between workshops or, or sessions or whatever. Mm, great. And then I was also thinking, say you have a session about justice and what justice means. Do you then, at the end of a session, have a summary, a way of bringing everything together, a, not a conclusion, I know it's an ongoing conversation, but, you know, something to, yeah. Sometimes, I mean, it, it's done differently at different times. At the moment, um, yes, at the moment it's being facilitated, as I say, by, by an asylum seeker who's actually really, really good at summing up what people are saying. It may not happen at the end of the session. Qu- quite often we listen for quite a while to somebody talking and then actually he is really really good at saying ah that really struck me because I think he was saying this and that relates to when I was on the streets you know when I was in NAS accommodation or whatever so there's there's a lot of summarizing going on another another person may say were you saying this or were you saying that I mean I I did that as well and I still do it um because I'm still present but you know um I wouldn't say necessarily we we come to the end maybe as you do in a seminar and say right these are the takeaway take home points we don't necessarily do that but that may happen on the whatsapp group you know um you know some sometimes i would summarize or or, or somebody would summarize some of the, the key points and how do you manage conflicting accounts and versions of for instance justice how do you do you try and bring people together is it a thing about trying to create some sort of consensus in the group or no, no, we don't try to create. What, what we try to do is get people to listen to each other and to understand where each other people are coming from. Um, you know, we've had, a, we've had, for example, we've had a topic recently about what you might call empowerment. Um, you know, obviously, this is a very big issue. Um, people feel disempowered routinely by, by the Home Office. We had we had a woman there who, who's actually got her papers and who has built gone from strength to strength, and she was talking about you know um, finding your voice and speaking out and how she and you can see she's a really strong person now and she's now working in the NHS and she's kind of you know she, she's she's got her life on track, and some people were sitting there listening and saying yes, but. Eventually, they said, because they were they were rather overawed by her. Um, I don't have that confidence. I don't know how, and I I don't know how to do that, and I don't have a voice. So we had to then talk about this. I, we we didn't say, oh yes, you do. Oh yes, you must speak out. We we think about why she feels she doesn't have a voice. We try to give her some encouragement in terms of you know you're maybe at the beginning of the journey now, and your confidence is rock bottom, but. That, that is often the case for human beings generally, particularly asylum seekers. It builds up, it grows over time, a bit like a cotton tree, if you like. So, you know, you may feel at the moment that you can't speak out, you're scared, you're, and, and that's fine. That's how you are. You're different from this other woman. But, you know, over time that can change. Um, so we had that, we had that discussion. People are, we, we absolutely endorse differences and that nobody's trying to say you, we must all agree about everything. So we were talking a bit about some of the issues with qualitative research, particularly around 
one-off interviews or research which doesn't have a sustained period of engagement with with the people they're working with. So could you tell me a bit more about that and how your sort of philosophy leads into a critique of this? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try. Um, so I... I, I mean, I like qualitative research. I think it's it's very good to listen to people in a kind of unstructured way, which I think is what what happens in qualitative research, and without trying to quantify um, what, everything that, that that they're saying or what what the mental health is at the, behind it. Um, I do have some concerns about what you might call a kind of the kind of time slice approach, um, because what happens, as I understand it, I mean, I'm not a qualitative researcher. I don't know that much about it, but you know, th- you have. A, a conversation, let's say, not not an interview, but a conversation. It's it's a slice of time, and the person will say a few things, and you'll record those things, and you'll have a chat with with that person and feedback and whatever. Um, but so I think there it can be misleading, as I understand it. And if you're really thinking about putting people at the heart of your thinking about mental health or whatever it is, um, a time slice may not be enough. So I can, if you like, I can give you a couple of examples from um, my experience with the cotton tree, where this could feed into what, what I'm saying just now and maybe illustrate it in a certain way. So we we have two women. I'm going to slightly disguise them, obviously, um, but two women who, with huge differences between them, but two asylum seekers. And the, um, the first one I'm going to call Danny, and the second one I'm going to call Carmen. And I'll just read you very briefly a couple of a few lines very about these these women, and then some of the conclusions that we came to around them. So Danny, to start with, is a dynamic young African woman. She makes her own clothes. She always looks fantastic, and she's always always furious with the Home Office um, for the way they treat her and, of course, other asylum seekers. She deals with this by writing letters of protest all over the place, to the Home Office, to her MP, to all, you know, all sorts of organisations. She also goes around, she, she's really, really streetwise. She knows, you know, organisation-wise, she, she knows where to find the best food and the best clothes and the best meals and whatever. And she's also very good at directing our members. So one of the things she said very clearly to us was, I want to help people in my position to have a dignified life. So she was with us for quite a while. And in the first few months, we thought, fantastic, you know, um, what what more could you want, really, of, of an asylum seeker? Okay, I'm going to just go on to the second person, Carmen. Um, she she thinks she's rubbish. Okay, low self esteem, if you like. She hates her accommodation. She hates the people she's forced to share it with. She hardly goes out, but she does occasionally come to our heal and grow meetings. But she's very quiet and she's very sulky. And on one occasion, somebody tried to draw her out because she wasn't saying anything, and she said. What's the point of heal and grow meetings? My life is worthless. So you've got a couple of little quotations from these two women. And if you think about the, just a little snapshots, I've just given you little snapshots of these people. And if I were to ask you the question, who has better mental health? I think it's kind of no brainer, right? <laughs> Nobody would say that the one who's silent and depressed and her life is worthless and blah, 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 has better mental health. Everybody would say Danny has mental, better mental health because she's resilient and resourceful and she's, she wants a dignified life and she wants to help others. But in fact, there was more to it than that. And this is really what I'm trying to get at when I talk about perhaps some of the limitations of qualitative research. So have, as a result of working with these people and being with these people, these two women, over months and years, really, we got much more than a time slice, obviously. And we learned some things that were very surprising. First of all, Danny, 
yes, she was she was very into self-empowerment and she um I'll, I'll just give you one or two examples of how she behaved during covid during lockdown she was put into a very small room in a hotel uh, very derelict very horrible horrible food practically inedible um and she protested and she she talked to the management and she wrote letters of protest and blah blah and she was supposed to be there for 23 hours a day but we had given her some paints to occupy her. We do this with our with our members, or we did it particularly during lockdown. She started painting not on the on the paper that we'd given her, but on the walls of the hotel, of her room. And she sent me photos of these, and her paintings became more and more elaborate. They became more and more full of insults and swear words and all sorts of things about the home office and the management and blah, blah, blah. So she was really letting off steam. She was, you know, she was showing that she had power, actually. This is this is the only way she could use it. She was also, she was told to stay there for 23 hours a day, as this happened, you know, at this time of lockdown. She decided just to ignore that on one occasion, just go and sleep in the park. She kind of called their bluff. And in fact, you know, she, they didn't kick her out. Technically, they should have done. Anyway, so this is how she, she behaved. And as we saw her behavior becoming more extreme, in the cotton tree, we became a little bit concerned. Some people thought, yes, this is really good to paint on the walls. Other people were rather concerned about it and thought she's going too far and she's behaving like a hooligan and we shouldn't really have somebody in the cotton tree who's, who's you know, whatever. So there, there was discussion and debate and we talked to her a lot on WhatsApp and blah, blah, blah. So, um, yeah, what happened was she became more defiant over time. She became more angry and she became angry with us. And this was something that took us by surprise initially. We were giving food vouchers to our members during lockdown because, and particularly to people in hotels who get absolute rubbish to eat. She wasn't happy with food vouchers. She demanded cash. And she said, I don't, you know, I don't want food vouchers. I don't want to go to Tesco's. I can't get what I need at Tesco's. I want cash and I want to go to the health stores and I want to be healthy. Things that sound really good, but we couldn't give her cash because we, this money came from a funder who said, no cash, you have to give food vouchers. She wouldn't accept that. And she became more and more angry with us. She started accusing us of being the home office or being in cahoots with the home office. And she, one of the things she said, apart from all sorts of abuse, which started being directed towards us, she said, I don't take no for an answer. And then we started having real problems because in life, you have to sometimes take no for an answer. You can't have everything your own way, obviously. So this started becoming quite a big problem. So I'll just continue her story a little bit. Well, what happened was the staff and the volunteers and the people who knew her well got together. We didn't know what to do. We really, really were very fond of her. We wanted to accommodate her. We don't. We never, never like to exclude people. We only do it when it really, really gets to an extreme point where we just can't handle it. And it's, it did get to this point. And so eventually uh, we referred her to a mental health charity and we, we came to the conclusion that she was um, she was not working through her trauma in the way that one needs to when and she had a very traumatic background instead she was trying to cover it up she was very much in denial she was she was basically saying um you know i i am powerful i refuse to be to submit to these things in a way which was to some degree healthy but it went beyond that and so we came to the conclusion that actually she she was not mentally healthy in fact she was she was really quite you know impossible for us to deal with she needed kind of expertise that we couldn't offer the other woman carmen who we who was very depressed who was very isolated very angry um we realized that she was actually going through a process she was really um 
thinking about what had happened to her, her traumatic experiences, and they were really bad. And they involved, you know, her family being murdered and her being, almost being murdered and escaping and all this. And she was very understandably depressed about that. The conclusion we came to about her was that we weren't quite clear, although initially she seemed very mentally, she seemed unhealthy mentally, mentally ill or whatever, we we became less and less sure that that was actually the right way to see her. And we started thinking, well, why shouldn't she be depressed? Why, why shouldn't she grieve? You know, she's grieving. This woman is grieving. Do we call somebody who's grieving in, in very understandable circumstances mentally ill? You know, somebody who says things like, my life is not worth living, that's a time slice. But in fact, when you look at the picture over two years, what we could see was that her grief was being worked through. And in fact, what happened to her was that she gradually emerged. I mean, not obviously not totally. Nobody's going to emerge from what she'd been through. But she started to become she uh, more independent, in, you know, in terms of seeing that she could have a life and that everything was not um, and that she wasn't rubbish <laughs> um, and that she was she was a worthwhile person. And that she could do, you know, worthwhile work. And she, and then she really started hoping to get her papers. And we were trying, trying to help her to do that. So the initial impression we had that, you know, Danny was the healthy one and Carmen was really not. That was based on rather short periods of time, exposure to them, if you like, over longer periods of time. The picture changed very, very dramatically and it, it really reversed. So this was, you know, this is, this is really to talk about, to say more about putting a person in the picture. And people occupy time, you know, they evolve through time. Things change through time. And it can be, it, it can be hard and misleading to say, you know, we've had a, a conversation with this person and we, we now judge that their, their mental health is poor or is good as a consequence of that. Great. Thank you. That's, um, yeah, that's fascinating. I think, that was all the questions I had, but, you know, um, is there anything else you want to add about, you know, this, this process you go through of bringing your, your philosophy to the work you're doing or anything else really? Mm. Mm. Um, I suppose, no, I think it's just an ongoing kind of um, mission or orientation where you know, I think a, a lot of people think that IE styles of thinking, it doesn't, not necessarily philosophy, but IE styles of thinking where you're defining words. You have to be clear about the meanings of words. I often find that's not helpful. And I often chip in and say, well, you may have a definition, but do you know what your definition means? Do you know how that definition actually plays out in people's lives? You know, so that's a kind of ongoing dialogue that I have with People, I mean, it can be in any context at all, because actually when we talk about EG and IE, it's not just about philosophy or academia. It's about people trying to understand also it's in politics. It's all over the place. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I just, I think, I think my, my, my orientation is towards bringing people back and getting them to look at, uh, at the human world as closely as possible and understanding that we're not going to see it very clearly all the time. Sometimes we're going to miss things. And that's just how it is. Wonderful. And um, finally, how can we follow your work um, inside academia, outside of academia, and if people want to follow up on some of the things you've been saying, what's the best avenue? Okay. Thank you. Um, well, to tell you the truth, I've been so busy with the cotton tree in the last few years, I haven't yet made myself a website, which I must do. 
and I must post some stuff there. Um, I mean, you know, I've, I've got a UCL email address and I've got a Cotton Tree email address and, and stuff is on Google, obviously. Um, so if you've got the right spelling, you'll, fortunately, I'm the only person in, pr- practically in the world, I think, who spells their name the way I do. <laughs> so it kind of comes up in, on Google. Um, and one day I'll have a website. How is, how is your name spelled? Okay. Ruth, you, I think you know. Uh, the second name is spelled with a C. That's, I always have to emphasize that because it's Sigmund and people write S. They hear it and they write S. And I say, no, it's C, it's C. So it's like cigarette, C-I-G, and then man, M-A-N. Yeah, I think Freud might have ruined that for you. <laughs> yes, I think he did. Um, great, well, that's, that's everything. Thank you so okay. much. That was really fascinating. And um, yes, as we've said, there's lots of ways to follow her work. And thank you so much. Thank you, Sahel. Cheers.